0: You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show.
1: Make some noise for Kenny Palantano, Sterling Lujan, and John Bush and Hakeem Anwar. We're going to be doing a panel here. This is titled, Is Digital Technology Neutral? A nuanced look at blockchain, crypto, AI, and digital IDs. And each of these gentlemen here have knowledge in each of these different areas. And also we have a mix of opinions. So this should be a lively discussion. And I want to go ahead and guys and start. I'll give you one prompt and as everybody has seen in the last year and a half, AI is causing disruptions in various industries. What are your thoughts on applying AI to, you know, like say, journalism, art, our world? I know some people on the stage are already using AI to maybe write copy for their website and things like that. Do you think this is a tool we should embrace? I just want to start there and hear your thoughts on that. You know, is it good, bad, pros, cons? Do you think we should use it, stay away from it? We'll start with you,
2: Kenny.
3: Well, I would say, yeah, it's good and it's bad and it's neutral. and. You know, it's a tool. It's a new, a new tool. It's a new technology. It's, I mean, any of our lines having to do with that are going to be relatively arbitrary, because it's like eyeglasses are a tool. The paintbrush is a tool. The camera is a tool. There's so many things that have been part of art or part of civilization that are just tools that were totally crazy when they came out, like the typewriter, versus people who spent their whole lives having really good handwriting and that being like their job, doing copywriting, literally writing. Like, there's. Yeah, I don't see any real difference between AI and all the other ones, except that we have so much conditioning from science fiction and from like coming into it. We've already got decades of stories about it, especially going wrong and killing the whole human race.
4: Yeah, so I have a tendency to agree mostly with Kenny. I work in the cryptocurrency and blockchain ecosystem in the communications field, and it's already clear to me that a lot of different people in the field are using artificial intelligence to varying degrees. For instance, I use Grammarly pretty regularly. It's not what I would call, it's not the most sophisticated AI that you can get right now, but it is a form of AI. And I just think that people are going to continue to use different artificial intelligence supplements to their work And likely they're going to continue using them and they're not even going to realize that they're using them. This is something I was mentioning to these guys earlier. A lot of times we're using different types of technologies and those technologies have some form of artificial intelligence built into it. So Spotify is an example of that. Anybody who uses Spotify is using an artificial intelligence as a de facto result of messing with that technology. So from that perspective, I definitely think that it is going to be and continue to be a ubiquitous technology. I do think by the same token, though, in terms of raw art or raw writing, the technology is not up to snuff whenever it's used currently, especially in writing. You can tell when somebody has used artificial intelligence to write their piece for them. So I do have some criticisms of... I mean, you can't just write now, at least the way things are. You can't come in and write a piece of copy, especially if it's of a more philosophical bent and hope that it's that it's good or it turns out good you can just tell that it was artificially intelligent generated and from that perspective I mean if you're going to use it at least be honest and say that you're going to use it I've I feel like I've had experiences where people have claimed that something belongs to them right or they wrote it but it was actually the result of AI so that's kind of an issue that's emerging and the thoughts on that are going to differ but I don't think that is a good thing. At least be honest with the work that you're producing. If it's AI, say, hey, this was an an AI helped me to create this. It wasn't just me.
0: So I think
4: oftentimes
0: people fear what they don't understand. And we have a relatively new phenomenon in artificial intelligence. But like... My other esteemed panelists shared. There actually has been artificial intelligence that many people have used. Sterling was just pointing out Spotify playlists. It learns what type of music that you like and serves up other music like that. That's artificial intelligence. I know we're trying to move away from Google Maps, um, especially with the above phone. But Google Maps is also artificial intelligence, checking on different routes and what the traffic is like here and there. So. At the end of the day, I wanna encourage people to take advantage of any tools we have at our disposal that can increase our ability to achieve our goals. Another issue, right, so it's a technology, And just like a firearm can be used to oppress people or to rob someone at gunpoint, a firearm could also be used in a revolution rising up against an authoritarian government or to protect and defend your family. Just the same with artificial intelligence. I'm sure this audience is well aware that the World Economic Forum, our good friends Klaus Schwab and Nuwari, that guy's a total jerk, but uh, you know, he's thinking on a next level. Like these guys are most definitely wanting to leverage artificial intelligence for very ill purposes, and they're going for this total information awareness panopticon society, mixing in the social credit scores, CBDC internet search traffic, what it is that we communicate and that is most definitely being ran through artificial intelligence algorithms and this is likely already happening but it will accelerate to happen when people advance to a higher level of scrutiny because of the communication that they say or perhaps we could anticipate by something that a child is saying in public school, they're displaying tendencies to be revolutionary in the future. right? So it's definitely being used by our enemies. But one thing that I would like to point out is why should we cede a technology to our enemies and not use it ourselves, right? Because I've found in the work that I do with Live Free Academy, I like, almost always have ChatGPT open in a window on my browser and if there's information that I need to find it most definitely returns searches more effectively than online. For example, the most recent time I used it was to do a, a report, a, the recession resistance report to help my audience be equipped with tools and strategies they can leverage financially uh, anticipating some economic downturns in the future. If it weren't for the support of AI, I would have, I may not even have put together the report because it would have taken longer for me to go through and do all the research. And one thing I want to point out as well, kind of echoing what Sterling was saying, it's not just all artificial intelligence, it's a human interaction with the large language model, that's what ChatGPT is, that makes it useful. So if somebody's just being lazy and they want to just put out some journalism, then you can kind of tell it's kind of shoddy. But if you have the creative ability to leverage a technology, just like a photographer can leverage the aperture, then uh, I think it can actually enhance our ability to create things. People think that it's taking away our creativity when in all reality it's given us the ability to create even more. So I'm a big fan of artificial intelligence. Let us all just be conscious and aware that there are large language models, like ChatGPT, that's woke. And if there's a young generation that doesn't have the consciousness yet to know that perhaps they're feeding us a pack of lies in some instances, uh, that could be a problem. But I wanna encourage everybody to have the scrutiny to be aware that not everything that comes out is truth. Let us not discontinue the pursuit of truth in the old school analog ways. But to sum up, I think that we should be leveraging all the tools at our disposal in the pursuit of peace and freedom.
2: Great answers across the board. So the way artificial intelligence or machine learning or predictive analytics works is it's training upon a body of data. And they've been doing this since the 80s. They've been able to detect whether a woman was pregnant based off of her purchases at Target. And they were able to do that before that woman's father even knew, all the way back then. So it's always been very powerful. And as John said, now the new thing that everyone's paying attention to are these large language models. And I agree with the rest of the speakers that we should be utilizing them to our greatest advantage. So let's get specific. What's an actual safe way to be able to use these? Well offline machine learning models or large language models would be my highest priority. Because if if you've ever used chat B- GBT, it doesn't know shit about natural health. It's like, huh? It starts making up shit, and you're like, dude, this is, this is not safe. And so we really need to take that back into our own hands. And there's some really cool projects that are already doing that. I know uh, Mike Adams, he's working on a uh, Chatbot for specifically for natural health. That's always been one of my intentions too. I have uh, 200 gigabytes worth of books from the 1700s to the 1900s, just some survival, anything from archery to canning to horseback riding. So one of my dreams is to actually put this data and uh, put it in a special database, a graph database, and actually have the uh, Chatbot able to answer questions from it, and I think that could be a really useful way for us to preserve this this ancestral information that you could only get from books. Um, and so I think that's the way we should be using it. I also think we should watch out for something called feebleness, which is the ability of you just getting dumb when you rely on AI for something. Much like we've done with, with, uh, with Google Maps and relying on navigation, nobody knows where they're going anymore without it, and that really bothers me. And so I prefer to drive around in circles and eventually figure it out. Right, But it's, it's the process and uh, it's a battle and um, you know we're all on the right side of it. So the last thing to sum up, if you can find large language models that are offline and not feeding chat GPT because they're definitely paying attention to what you put into that and tuning it, it's never gonna give us the truth that we're looking for. Although it can spin up a lot of bullshit and legal arguments and it can help people program. There's a lot of valid uses for it, but um, maybe not so much in alignment with what we're trying to do.
1: Awesome, thank you. Since Sterling mentioned it and then John, you mentioned using AI, is your audience aware that you use AI before this moment? Like, is there any kind of disclaimer in your emails? This was written by ChatGPT. Or do you feel like that's necessary?
0: The emails aren't written by ChatGPT. (laughs) I know that we send a lot of them, but they're not written by ChatGPT. No, and, and a full disclosure, I was publishing social media content on our shared channels, Freedom Cells and The Greater Reset. It was like what is the you know what are freedom cells and here's 3 tips to use it. And like I said before, it was a period where I was so busy I wouldn't have put out that extra content were it not for the leg up that I got from having it be speedy. And it wasn't like an intention to deceive anyone. It was just like, because I go through and edit it and make it more exactly what I'm trying to convey, leveraging the AI tool. But my compadres were like, hey man, you know, you you should probably let people know that that's happening. I don't know if we feel comfortable with it. And that was a big eye opener for me, right? So I'm just going at 10X speed and trying to produce things and make things happen. And, And that's one of the cool things about, even though it's challenging sometimes to, be working in a partnership, you have your partners there to kind of be like, hey, I think it would probably be more just or more true, more in alignment, more in integrity if we were to make the audience aware, right? So I'm totally with that. Um, I do openly speak about AI and I know that there's people that are like hesitant or resistant to it, but I do think ultimately open discourse and communication and full disclosure is optimal for communities and for building trust.
1: Perfect. We're going to play a quick video and we're going to continue on. This was actually from this week's World Economic Forum meeting.
3: Why? Because in order to open an account, you need to have an ID. Right. And um, I have to say that when we, when I started this job, there were actually very little countries in Africa or Latin America that had one ubiquitous mm-hmm. type of ID. And certainly that <laughs> it was digital. And
1: certainly that it was biometric. And now uh, we've really worked with all our partners to actually help that being... Uh, um, I mean, to grow this. So that video there was just kind of a summation of what we already know about digital IDs, the dangers of them. And I want to kind of pose a similar question of what we just did to AI, but in terms of digital identity. Obviously, we know the governments of the world are working on digital identity programs, and we all know social credit scores, everything we discussed, how those can be used as tools for tyranny. And at the same time, there are people out there who believe that some form of digital identity could be useful, even within a community, say like an intentional freedom community, maybe there's some you know, application for that. So sa- similar question, do you think there's any place in our world for sovereign, you know, kind of autonomous digital identities? Is there a place where that could be useful or should we just, again, stay as far away from those as possible?
3: Well, this is another realm where I think there's, there's a lot of very current media talk and like public talk about this sort of thing that doesn't take into account how common it already is as well. So if you look at like eBay or Uber or anything like that, where they have a reputation score based on how you've interacted with people on the platform, that's their own little microcosm of a digital ID. So I think we definitely need that stuff. Like local Mon- local Monero runs on that. Like anything where you need to be able to trust the person on the other side in any way, we need a reputation system to be able to track who can be trusted and who can't, who can be trusted and who can't. That should be you know at as local level as possible as transparent and you know informed consent as possible obviously not you know giant walls of text where you don't realize that you just gave away all your information forever but I think we're yeah we definitely need it if we're going past Dunbar's number if we're going past that realm where you can actually know and trust the people around you when we're working in the thousands or the millions of people we need some way to track who shows up and who doesn't who's a bad actor and who's not
4: yeah, I think there's a really interesting case to be made for the use of different types of digital identity. Without going into all the points that, that my dear friend Kenny here made, there are a variety of use cases for digital identity that makes sense in an environment of polycentric governance models or a multiplicity of governance models because we now have a technology called Zero Knowledge Proofs, ZKP, And we can actually use these technologies so that we can actually reveal certain information to somebody, any specific information they want to reveal without revealing the rest of our information. Like when you hand somebody your ID, of course they see your name, your date of birth, expiration date, the driver's license ID number, if we're assuming it's a driver's license number. So let's assume that we have the possibility to use zero knowledge proofs to prove our identity in a certain scenario without giving away extra information. So a common example that's been used is if somebody goes to a bar, they're, try- they're, they're trying to get in. They may be underage, or somebody may, the the barkeep may think they're underage. They're trying to order a drink. They can actually prove their age without giving the rest of that information that's on their ID. So there are technologies that allow us to leverage identity management without revealing other types of information. And I could see particularly how this tech could be used to damage the nation state system of just having to reveal all your information all of the time, right? Because we can use the technology for our benefit, for our purposes, for the type of society that we're building. It doesn't have to be nation state, Jeremy Bentham Bentham Panopticon apparatus of control. It can be an ID or identification for us, for the people, for our societies, for our polities.
0: There obviously is a need and a benefit to being able to identify oneself and a lot of it has to do with reputation, a lot of it has to do with avoiding fraud. Like it or not, we're entering an increasingly digital world. More and more services, more and more goods, e-commerce wasn't even a thing not very long ago. And it's something that we need to be aware of and we can resist it or we can accept it and figure out how to best navigate around it. So there are obviously government and new world order solutions that are being presented where it's pretty damn clear that these people are not about benefiting humanity. They're about control. But the trickier part is there's also sovereign and decentralized solutions that may seem like they're a positive thing, but the enemies of liberty and the World Economic Forum and the predator class are so cunning that they've actually infected these communities and networks as well with grant money and pushing projects forward. One thing that I want to share that was a big eye-opener as far as perspective for me, and the lesson of course is that let us always examine things from someone else's position perspective because we're all different, right? So there's a project called Cardano. It's similar to Ethereum in that it's a cryptocurrency where you can write code and programs on top of the blockchain. And they're actually working on a digital ID program in several different African countries. And on the surface, you know, folks in our community would say, well, this is obviously a bad thing. Digital ID equals bad, therefore we should be against it. But I was digging a little bit deeper into it, and it's not that I support it or don't support it, it's just that we have to be aware there's certain countries that are still developing and they don't have any stable semblance of government or continuity or consistency. And imagine trying to lift your family and your bloodline up out of poverty, working your butt off, starting to establish some capital for your family that you can pass on to your children. And a dictator comes in and takes it all away from you. And there's no record or way to prove that you had ownership over that property. Well, they were making the pitch for digital id because an individual now can have an identity and a property right and something that would go beyond the dictator of the day so just something for perspective right i don't like the term privilege i I choose to say advantage but growing up in texas in the us obviously it's not ideal and there's much work to be done Um, we have had the advantage of record keeping and at least some semblance of a stable and consistent system for property rights. Many people in, the, in this world do not have that and they may welcome digital ID even though here we are saying this is the new world order. They could say this is my opportunity to lift my family out of poverty. Just some things to think about when it comes to these nuanced technologies.
2: This is a really, uh, this is a really great question by the way. Can we give it up for Derek? It's great questions. So this is a really challenging problem Partially because we're all strangers on the internet trying to send money to each other and buy all kinds of stuff. Have you seen those telegram chats, those black market telegram chats? You feel safe going in those chats? I, I don't really that much. And I've been thinking about, you know, what's the right way to go about this? And I think it would be, there needs to be some sort of trusted party, maybe that everyone sends their IDs to. And that way there is at least a background check, right? But what's stopping someone from creating a new ID or generating a picture of an AI AI ID or anything like that, or just creating a new pro- profile? And the more I think about it, I think th- what actually makes sense is people proof and uh, having such strong connections and bonds within our community that we can always hook each other up to one another. And maybe in that sense, it's not like, a, you know, not like a private key or a public key that you go to, but just because you have trusted people in your network, you can get their direct contact information. Um, so I think it's always gonna be a challenge working, you know, working over the internet, and um, I do think there needs to be some sort of ID and reputation system, so yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: All right. You know, I think ultimately it comes down to the ideal scenario, and tomorrow's all about community building, right? And we do work with the Exit and Build Land Summit. Ideally, our needs come from the land and the community that we have a face-to-face relationship. A handshake is our digital ID, looking them in the eye. If we can establish an environment where that's where we get just about all of our needs and our wants met, and then we can go venture off online to have some added benefit, but we know at the end of the day we have that trust and reputation because we live in the same geographic area with those people. We get each other's backs. We grow our own food. We live communally. I think that could help to alleviate some of the concerns that do naturally arise from this whole online world. Awesome.
1: So, first off, I wanted to throw a little fact check into what John was saying there. Not a fact check, but let's hear about Charles Hoskins from Cardano, who spoke at the World Economic Forum in January 2020. Uh, what John was speaking about is true in one sense, but I really worry about it, especially like the, what he was talking about, like, how do you get your family, you know, out of uh, poverty without having an ID. It is a real problem. Some people can't get a job or can't do this. And that's what Bill Gates likes to say as well. He says that his focus is how do we help the unbanked of the world become banked? And to do that, we've got to get them digital identities. And to me personally, it's selling this idea that we're not real people until we've got a form of ID. Now, of course, if it's some autonomous ID, that would be totally different. But what they, they, the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates are talking about, is an identity that then ties you into the social credit scores, the CBDCs and everything like that. And Charles Hoskins of Cardano, which I personally don't trust, here's, here's a here's a quote from him at the World Economic Forum about how um, using Cardano and some of the things that they're working on. He said, we want to be able to follow the money. How do you track that? How do you trace that? How do you make sure the money is actually going to the right hands? Uh, he also said that they want to create a self-sovereign identity, which has the right words, right? But he said, and pair that with tracking and traceability and the ability to know that people are spending money correctly. So even within the crypto space, there are people who are not aligned with what we're talking about. And I don't trust Cardano. I'm throwing that out there, Charles Hoskins. And that's just one example, so you know, I am maybe the only person on this stage who hasn't used AI in any way at all, other than the way Sterling was talking about within built-in systems that I might already be using, but in terms of going to the chatbots, and I'm not trying to say one's better than the other, it's just clearly I use digital technology, but who else would put themselves in that category? Who hasn't played with ChatGPT yet? Only a few, okay, more hands than I expected. And that's not to say those who are using it are wrong or anything like that, I just think this is why we're going to have this conversation, right? Because we have such a beautifully diverse community, and I think for some of us, we enjoy the benefits of technology, obviously. But we also want to stay as close to the earth as possible, right? And how do we balance that out? You know, how do we understand that we can use all the benefits of technology? I think John was kind of touching on the answer there, right? As we're building these communities and we're exiting and building, ideally, we don't have to go to the internet for every resource we need and have to get Amazon and other companies that we don't really like to ship us stuff from thousands of miles away. Instead, we, you know, have relationships and networks that we build and we know people by the face to face. And then maybe when we go beyond that, there are forms of private identity and things like that could be used. So, I think you know finding that balance is really why we're here to have this conversation and to bring that this all to you. Audience questions? Yeah, come over here, brother.
3: My statement first. I'm really scared of AI uh, and the mind control. You know, government control, all the controls. So, number one, how do you does that scare you? What's your thoughts on? the way AI can be used to control us, either you know, through human players or on its own or whatever, and how can we as a community access, to, access that, to combat that, to spread our message.
1: The last thing you said, how do we maybe use AI to combat against them, is that what your question was? or?
3: Yeah, to you know, f- further our own message and to combat the obvious scary control that's probably about to happen and already happening. <laughs> Thank you.
4: Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on this. The first thing I will absolutely say to help prevent AI from harming us in the long run, the very first thing that we need to do is don't make it illegal. Do not ban AI. Government should not ban AI. Nobody should push to make it illegal. What happens? And a bunch of authors have talked about this. I recommend reading Max Tegmark's book, Life 3.0 and a lot. there's a few other researchers who have discussed this, but as soon as you ban artificial intelligence or you have a fear that it's going to take over and start hurting humanity in any way, black hat actors get a hold of that technology and they start developing, developing it for their own malicious ends to harm us directly. And now we've lost the ability to defend ourselves with AI. So the very first thing that has to happen is we can't put a leash on AI development. See, the thing with technology, it's like Pandora's box, it's been opened, it's unleashed. You're not gonna prevent somebody from developing out this technology. It'd be like standing out on the beach and a, a tsunami's coming toward you and you hold out your hand and you try to stop it. What's gonna happen? Yeah, you're, gonna get, you're gonna get destroyed. So that's the main point I wanna make, to help create an equilibrium, a grounded balance of AI development, keep it open and available for everybody.
2: Yeah, give a, I mean, give some applause for that. We can't make it illegal because otherwise it would only be in the hands of companies like OpenAI, which recently removed uh, the clause in their terms of service, saying they wouldn't use it for military means. So there's a contract impending with the Department of Defense, if I'm not mistaken. And, um... To that, when it when you speak to the fear of AI, you know what are the ways it could really impact us. Let's look at that. There's the psychological impact it can have on us, where it's like, which they've been doing like intuitively. You can tell for years with things like comment threads on Reddit. And people who really love, uh, really love presidential candidates, or are really mad about one attitude, or really take global warming so seriously, we all know that you know um, astroturfing has been a long time coming, and that was an easy pivot for AI. So a lot of what you see on the internet from people who are anonymous, my intuitive hit is that those are probably AI already. So that's like the psychological aspect of it is that it can try and influence you. I don't think that's that scary. You know, if it tries to program me, I'm just going to. Turn the tv off or i'm just not going to pay attention to that comment you know you know what's real and you know what's not real the thing that might be a little bit more scary is ai used in military technology either in terms of like targeting or like the uh, smart random bombs that israel is dropping on palestine right now to choose out targets i think that's more scary and you know that's one of the things where it's in god's hands so um, all we can do is, is band together and pray that we we maintain peace in this world. So the psychological aspect you can totally ignore. Go on about it. You know what's real and you know what's not real.
0: You know, ChatGPT, OpenAI, like I said, I use it as a tool. Be aware that it is controlled, manipulated. It's pretty much some New World Order stuff going on there. Um, I actually did an experiment when Elon's Grok AI, which is incorporated into Twitter X, formerly known as Twitter, I think that was a bad move to change the name by the way but um, and I asked it what happened with building 7 on 9-11 and so you ask chat GPT and it's like it's a conspiracy theory that's been disproven by the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the FEMA report on building Seven. Blah, blah 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 and I had read all those reports back in college I would print them out like stacks this big right and there's so many holes in them anyway you ask grok and it says, oh, building seven, that collapsed in six and a half seconds on its own footprint. While there are, and it kind of gave a more objective. It didn't say, of course, it collapsed on itself and it was an inside job, it, but it did mention six and a half seconds, which I thought was pretty cool. 9-11 was an inside job. So just be aware that there are some large language models that are more controlled, manipulated. There are some folks that are trying to open things up. And I'm glad that uh, Hakim mentioned Mike Adams, right? So we've got fans of Mike Adams, Natural News, right? He actually is creating a large language model. And I think the cool thing, what I wanna see more of in this community is us not being like, they're so powerful, we're so small, we're constantly reacting to them and we're totally screwed. I would like us to see like okay they're doing big things now let's do some big things ourselves and just like Hakeem was saying let's build our own large language model for natural health for cryptocurrency for solutions and then one other thing back to Mike Adams we did an interview with him and he was talking about this large language model stuff and uh he kind of went off on the rails about like robotic artificial intelligence squirrels that become self-aware and go and hunt down all the people that aren't following along with whatever agenda and just start talking about robots becoming self-aware and killing people and so like robot dogs robot dogs are already a thing right and the big fear is that artificial intelligence is like i'm here to self-preserve, it becomes conscious or aware, and it sees that human beings are a threat to itself or a threat to humanity or a threat to the planet or whatever, and then we go into this terminator scenario. And so I just want to throw this last piece out. The solutions that are communicated on this stage at the greater reset, the freedom cell network, the accident build strategy, no matter what shifting strategy and tactic comes from the new world order, at the end of the day, the solutions that are being shared on this stage are the solutions no matter how fast the technology advances. We're worried about robotic squirrels that are gonna come and explode because AI's become self-aware. We need to get the heck out of the city and build communities and compounds out in the country with like-minded freedom lovers. We're worried about digital ID and panopticon surveillance. We need to opt out, use privacy, encrypted communication applications, so on and so forth. We know what the solution is. If anything, let this talk of artificial intelligence, self-awareness, and the true threats that are coming down the pike from the World Economic Forum and their whole little coalition, please let it light a fire under your ass to advance your pursuit of freedom and creating an ideal life for you and your family.
3: There are so many different kinds of AI, just in the GPT, like the text realm, there's so many different ones. There's so many different tools. If you're gonna start playing with it, I would recommend using GPT for all. It's an open source, local thing that lets you play with all sorts of different large language models. If you look into the Stanford Alpaca, it's a layout of how to very cheaply and easily set up your own large language model. Uh, A friend of ours, Scott, has a thing called Empathy Bot. He's been building for years, which is a chat bot for practicing empathy, nonviolent communication, authentic relating, learning that language, getting those tools down. He's now contracting it to companies to help their AI customer service be more empathetic. So, like, yeah, there's evil stuff going on with it just because the evil parties are going to do evil stuff with any tool. And there's people using this to help the revolution. And, yeah,
1: that's really all I have to say there. Cool. So we got time. We're going to go through one more topic. Give a round of applause for that comment, though, because what, what Kenny just said, I think, is so important. You know, I've been saying for years that I think we're essentially in a digital arms race that, as you said, the other side. Sure. They're going to create devices to track, trace, spy, control all those things. And the people on the tech side who have the knowledge and some of you are in this audience, some of you are at home are gonna create ways for us to encrypt our stuff, to protect ourselves, to avoid their things, and to you know slow them down. And that's why it's important that whether, for those of us like myself who are not tech literate beyond using the devices to support those who are in those fields and make sure they have the support, whether that's financial or just moral support, promoting their projects, so that we're not left with just a chat GPT, Microsoft bot, and the ones that Kenny talked about all just disappear because they have no support. That's what happens with a lot of good projects, unfortunately. So we're gonna end with a little bit conversation around Bitcoin and this won't get too technical for those who are not aware of Bitcoin. We're gonna focus more on just the Bitcoin, Bitcoin specifically, the whole industry around Bitcoin. And you know, when I first started learning about this, it was with John and a few others back in 2011, 2012. I went to the Texas Bitcoin conference in 2012 Got to interview Vitalik Buterin, the you know the guy at the Ethereum Foundation, and other people that that year. And I was that was the time when many of us were like, "This is it. This is the non-state money we've been looking for. Gonna this is going to end the Fed. It's very exciting." And here we are, ten years later, and it is completely controlled. I mean, anybody who denies that is just not paying attention. Sure, Bitcoin has rose in value, but there's a lot of different issues. We're not going to have time to get into all of them. But I wanted to make a few little points here for those who are not really deep into this. This is just another example. So. There's a company called Blockstream, very connected to uh, blockchain tech companies. They've received $76 million in investments from a company called AXA Strategic Ventures. The head of AXA, their CEO was Henry de Castries, who sits on the board of Nestle, HSBC. He was also a steering committee member of the Bilderberg Group from 2010 to 2019. Barry Silbert, founder of the Digital Currency Group, which is involved in a lot of different crypto projects. And you know they're taking money from all kinds of fun people. They've also been you know, highlighted and supported by the World Economic Forum. We could go on and on and look at these connections. One other one I'll mention is that uh, the, you know, there's a lot of people at the MIT Media Labs that played instrumental roles in the beginning of Bitcoin. And there's a man by the name of Jeffrey Epstein who gave a lot of money to that MIT Media Labs. And there's some evidence that Epstein, his money was involved in funding the very early stages of Bitcoin and, and other projects. So I say all that to say clearly, we all know there's issues in that that space, and for those of us who, like for me, I spent 2017 and 2018 touring the United States, partnered with a, a Bitcoin company, giving out Bitcoin. Here's five dollars. This could help you. Here's how to use it. Traveling around, trying to get businesses to adopt it, because we really believed if more people use this, we have an alternative currency. Here we are, five years later, and I definitely, you know you hold it I guess like digital gold but I wouldn't really promote Bitcoin as the freedom money anymore. We have Monero, we have other projects but I just want to hear your thoughts on how the space has changed you know because it was always there in the beginning there were always people who thought for cryptocurrency to be legit, we got to get government regulation and all this sort of stuff. There's always been this dichotomy of the sort of anarchist, freedom minded people, and those who want government involvement. And here we are, and the side that wants government regulation is clearly winning, and the people who are connected to some bad players are clearly winning, at least as far as Bitcoin's concerned. So, just any thoughts you guys have on that whole situation? Solve it in 90 seconds.
3: All right, all right. Their plan was to have digital currencies long before Bitcoin was a thing, long before the sovereign individual was written, long before any of this stuff. They already knew that this was something they wanted to push for. And so for me, the question has always been more of like, once we get to the point of all digital currency, will we have alternatives slash will each individual person themselves know how to use those alternatives? Or will they just be stuck using the CBDC digital ID system? Because there's no question of it coming or not unless, you know, the world gets meteored or something like that. Like assuming a general same trend of our timeline, that's rolling out for sure. The only question is, yeah, do you know how to use pirate or uh, Monero? Do you know how to use all the black market side of things? Do you know how to use these alternatives or are you just getting sucked in?
4: Yeah, so this goes directly back to what Derek was saying as well. I was working in Bitcoin in 2015. I was working at Bitcoin.com with Roger Ver. And you guys, if you remember Roger, he was a huge supporter of Bitcoin, one of the first investors in many Bitcoin companies. He invested in Blockchain.com, BitPay, I think also Ripple he invested in. He was was a huge player. So as I was working at Bitcoin.com with Roger, what started to happen is that there was... Two groups of people that started to form, two political divisions, one of them that wanted to, to scale the Bitcoin blockchain so that it could be mass adopted and used as cash. The, the other group, of course, wanted to keep the block size small, wanted to not allow transactionality on Bitcoin and wanted to maintain it as a quote-unquote digital gold use case. At Bitcoin.com, we were making the case in the argument, and I still agree with Roger to this day, and it's to what Derek said. Mass adoption and the use of Bitcoin as a currency was what was going to engender not only freedom, but a movement away from government-minted fiat currencies. So at this point in time, we were starting to see a lot of shady things happening in that in the Blockstream community, in Bitcoin Core community, and what it looked like from our site was these guys were just playing into the, the larger system. Obviously, they were taking money and funding, but at the end of the day, none of that stuff even, even matters. We can actually ignore that and just look at what they did. They prevented Bitcoin from scaling, they prevented mass adoption, and they created a scenario now where the, the fiat currency system c- gets to continue moving forward We pushed back mass adoption for a number of years. Now there's all these competing other cryptocurrencies, and it's making it tremendously difficult for us to even get people involved in the space. It didn't help that we had a ton of different rug pulls and schemes and scams in the the space, but I think some of that was probably just a part of this operation as well. But I do want to say, if we can get a cryptocurrency to be mass adopted as money, as a unit of currency, we're moving in the direction we need to go. That's why I'm still a fan of projects like Bitcoin Cash that have actually focused on the cash use case. So anything that's not being used, especially for what its intended purpose was, back to Satoshi Nakamoto and the Bitcoin white paper, it was supposed to be a peer-to-peer electronic cash system That died off, right? And now people, they just imagine that it's supposed to be a digital gold originally. They don't even look back on or care about the white paper. But I think we need to engender mass adoption. We need to stick to those original principles if we want to get out of the scope of this system and not have to worry about this fiat currency nightmare where we get ripped off and expropriated all the time.
1: Thank you. Let me just add one thing real quick. Just in case anybody's not familiar, like when we say digital gold, so gold is something that you typically hold as an investment, it slowly gains value. So the difference between me being able to send Kenny money, crypto, Bitcoin, and we use it to buy veggies out there, fruit or whatever, that's an actual real world everyday currency. That's what the vision was. Instead it's become buy Bitcoin and just sit it in your wallet and hold on to it and it'll slowly gain value. And so people treat it more like a stock instead of a revolutionary idea. And that's the problem, so. Go ahead,
0: John. Yeah, so this is a great topic uh, to communicate and it's really important and I've done a whole lot of work educating people about crypto as, as we all have. Unfortunately, Bitcoin lost its way. And as Derek pointed out, it's not the case that Bitcoin lost its way. It's the case that Bitcoin, the project was captured by a group of people. Larry Summers was somebody that was involved, the former Department of Treasury secretary that architected the bailouts, right? He was involved in this whole Blockstream fiasco. Um, And it's unfortunate because originally, Bitcoin was extremely revolutionary and the people that were involved were a bunch of anarchists and cypherpunks and projects like the Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht, experimenting with how can we actually create a safe way for people to buy illicit goods in an online marketplace with the reputation setting uh, system. And so it's unfortunate that it lost its way. And I believe what's taken Bitcoin's spot as the revolutionary currency, it's Monero. Monero is an incredible cryptocurrency, regardless of Bitcoin not scaling and no longer being practically to use as digital cash because the transaction fee so high sometimes the transaction fees upwards of $2, 10 20 $30. So back in the day when I would go to a coffee shop and say, you guys should accept Bitcoin for your coffee. It's really it's a really great opportunity. You'll get a lot of business from it. We're trying to grow the ecosystem. It doesn't make sense to buy a $5 coffee, period.
3: <laughs>
0: I buy $5 coffee all the time. Anyway, it doesn't make sense to buy $5 coffee and pay a $2 transaction fee. I think Monero is that position. I do want to share though. It's like, okay, what do, this, these are all facts that took place. So what do we do about it? I do believe that there is still value in people that want to preserve and grow wealth to invest in Bitcoin. Just be aware that it's not practical to use. And one more quick practical tip If you're like dollar cost averaging or buying small amounts of Bitcoin regularly and then sending it to your wallet regularly, if the transaction fees are extremely high, you may find yourself in a position where you're not able to do a Bitcoin transaction because the data size of that transaction, because there's so many small bits that are coming in, they're called unspent transaction outputs, that's actually what makes the transaction fee higher if you send yourself a tenth of a Bitcoin over and over and over and over for a year, or a hundredth of a Bitcoin a thousandth. So people that have been doing that, you need to be aware that you need to do what's called consolidating unspent transaction outputs. Write that down, be aware of that, because you don't wanna find yourself where you invested 10, 20,000 bucks, you've amassed half a Bitcoin, a full Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin goes up to 250, $500,000, which it very likely will, and then you try to sell it or spend it And it's impractical to do so because the fee for that transaction is $25,000 $2500 just a practical tip i do still invest in bitcoin myself i do still encouraging people that are looking encourage people that are looking to preserve and grow wealth to invest in bitcoin but at the end of the day the revolutionary decentralized digital currency that's also private that we're all looking for is Monero. And I highly encourage people to learn to use it. And now there's atomic swaps where you can swap in and out of Bitcoin and Monero. So it gives you kind of like a savings account, checking account scenario.
2: Yeah, it looks like across the board, we have consensus on Monero. I remember back in 2012, I was messing around with Bitcoin and I was playing Bitcoin poker with it. Texas Hold'em. Big mistake. Um, Like uh, the other speakers have said, this is about real world use, real practical use. And if you wanna look at real ways you can do serious commerce with this, there's no better place than looking at the dark net markets where people sell pounds and pounds of different drugs like ecstasy, cocaine, all sorts of stuff, right? Just as an observation to see what they're doing because their operational security must be pretty high. They need to protect themselves from all types of people. Or they're the government. Or or they're the government. That's always a possibility. I know one of the biggest markets, I won't name it, is uh, only using Monero. It's not even using Bitcoin at all and um, has different, um, different encryption mechanisms for the messaging on site. But this is, uh, I think it's been estimated, the, uh, what do they call that? The market cap of some of these dark net markets is getting close to a few hundred million dollars and even potentially a billion dollars. So uh, there is a big part that exists. I think one of my original missions was to, instead of making a dark net market, maybe making like a white net market, you know, where there's no drugs allowed, no no booze or anything like that. It's all just holistic, natural products. And maybe we'll see something like that in the future. Um, last thing, chainless plug. Uh, myself, Kenny, and Derek also have a uh, crypto commerce uh, privacy course showing you how to use Bitcoin and Monero and if you guys want to see this it covers everything from the on-ramps exchanging within Bitcoin and Monero and off-ramps and how to do that completely privately so we've got that course online at above.university.com thank you guys awesome give a round of applause
1: to our panel everybody